Thank you so much. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. If you're a guest of ours today, we've been journeying through the book of Revelation together on Sunday morning. We have just a couple more weeks left. And so as we dive into these chapters, one, if, if you haven't been here, it may seem a little scattered. It may seem like there's some uh, frayed ends, uh, but trust me, it all makes sense as we have journeyed from chapter one through uh, this morning's passage. If you're taking notes there, pay attention to the backside of the bulletin, and we will obviously walk through this together. Uh, let me share with you a quote from John Phillips, a wonderful student of God's Word, a wonderful theologian. In his uh, introduction to chapter 20, he made this statement, and I quote, The golden age has come. Prosperity is evident from pole to pole. Poverty is unknown. The wolf and the lamb, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear, the child and the scorpion, all are at peace. Jesus has come and the millennium is here. The golden age, so frequently heralded by the prophets of Israel's past, has dawned at last, and the earth is filled with the knowledge of God. Jesus is Lord, and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. His reign is righteous, and the nations obey. End quote. Chapter 20 begins with the discussion of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on this earth. Now, the, the earthly kingdom of Christ, the, the, the idea of this kingdom of Christ is certainly not limited to this text, and we're going to see some other texts in Scripture where we see this very same truth. It is promised to us throughout all of God's Word. Now, what, what is the thousand-year kingdom? What does it refer to? It refers to that period when Christ and his church will reign over the nations, and the world will enjoy the blessings promised by the prophets, blessings of peace and prosperity, blessings of righteousness and joy. Now, this will be a worldwide kingdom. It will display Christ's glory when, when all the nations will be set free from the bondage of sin. Matter of fact, this is the kingdom the Jews were expecting and anticipating when Messiah came. The, 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 the primary reason the Jews, by and large, rejected Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah was because he didn't establish this kingdom, this, this anticipated kingdom that the prophets so often spoke about. Now, why didn't Christ establish his kingdom 2,000 years ago? Because before he could establish his kingdom, he had to finish God's work of redemption. And so something had to happen first, and that was his death and resurrection, his ascension back to the Father before the kingdom could be established. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes for us in Isaiah chapter 11 as it relates to the Messiah's kingdom. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. 
He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he, he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. A prophetic announcement of the Messiah's kingdom. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30, the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And now we understand that Christ did not accomplish that prophecy in his earthly life. And there are dozens and dozens of other passages throughout Scripture that point us to this kingdom of Messiah. And so look with me beginning here in verses 1 through 3. For here's what I want us to see in these verses. We see the incarceration of Satan. Let's read that text together. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Now, let me just remind you of where we are. At this point in time, at this point in the, in the picture of Revelation, God has passed judgment against every man, woman, and child that chose to rebel against him, that chose to reject him as Lord and Savior. And we saw that specifically with the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments. At this point, he has thrown Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, which we understand is that final eternal home of all those opposed to Christ. And we're going to look more at that in just a moment. Now look with me in your notes, because here's what I want you to really understand about verses 1 through 3. The final step in preparation for Christ's thousand-year kingdom is the incarceration of Satan. This is the final act that happens before Christ establishes this kingdom. Now, look closely at the four names that we see here used for Satan. First is dragon. It is a reference to his ferocious and cruel nature. In other words, there's nothing kind or caring or compassionate or loving about Satan. Secondly, he's referred to as that ancient serpent. It takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and reminds us that he is the one who is constantly tempting us to sin and to rebel against the Lord. The third name we see there is devil. It is a word that means slanderer or malicious gossip. And then finally, the word Satan is a word that means adversary. And it refers to his opposition to God, to Christ, 
and to all believers of all times. And so that we, we know exactly who this is referring to. There's no ambiguity at all there. And God sends an unnamed angel. We don't know who this angel is, but this angel possesses great power. He seizes Satan, and he casts him into the abyss or, or into the bottomless pit where he will remain, it says, for a thousand years. Now remember, in chapter 12 we studied where Satan was cast out of heaven, okay? Now he's cast out of the earth. And the abyss is always a reference to a, to a temporary place of incarceration. And we've seen that in relation, uh, in relation to the demons. In chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 18, we saw it as a place where the demons were sent uh, in, in, a, in, in Scripture. The, the abyss is also uh, the place of torment, a place that demons fear to be sent. Remember in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus crossed over to the region of the Gerasenes and there was that man who was demon-possessed, who was naked and who lived in the caves. And even when he would be seized, he would break off those chains, those bondage. And he was just a wild maniac until he met Christ. And in that encounter, listen to what the, the demon said to the Lord in chapter 8 of Luke verse 31. And they, the demons, begged him, begged Christ, not to banish them to the abyss or the bottomless pit. The abyss now is not their final place of punishment. It's not their eternal destiny. The lake of fire is. The abyss is a temporary place where they will spend some time. Just remember from Matthew chapter 25, what, what did Jesus say to us in that parable of the sheep and the goats? He said this, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so their, their eternal resting place is the lake of fire. And we're going to see that more in just a moment. Now look closely at verse 3 of what we read here. Satan will not be capable of deceiving people for these thousand uh, of years. He's not permitted to interfere with the kingdom of Christ in any way over the duration of these thousand years. And so here's where we are in verses 1 through 3. Having taken care of his enemies, the Lord Jesus Christ is now free to establish his righteous kingdom on this earth, a kingdom of peace and prosperity and perfect rule. The, 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 the climax, climax of, of creation history is the kingdom of of Christ. It's what all the prophets longed and looked forward to. It's what the disciples longed for and questioned and asked Jesus time and time again, is it now time for your kingdom? Well, it is here in Revelation chapter 20. Now, look with me beginning at verse 4. For we see the reigning of the saints. The reigning of the saints. R-E-I-G. N-I-N-G, the reigning of the saints. Let's read that together. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy, holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The kingdom of Christ will be a worldwide display of his glory. All of creation will be set free from the bondage and the consequence of sin. The kingdom of Christ will be an answer to the prayers of of the church. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is answered in this text. Now, here's what's so fascinating. In these verses, the saints of God are seen ruling and reigning. Look with me in your notes. They're seen ruling and reigning over every aspect of the kingdom under the authority of Jesus. Now, who are the saints of God that we see ruling and reigning with Christ? Well, the short answer is this. They are believers from all generations. What do I mean by that? They include the Old Testament saints, those who by faith trusted in the promises of God for a coming Messiah and what he would do. It refers to the church, those of us who by faith believe in what has happened. We look back at the work of Christ in redemption. And it also includes the tribulation saints, all those who have placed their faith in Christ during the seven-year tribulation that we've been studying. Now, how do we know it includes all believers from all generations? Because the second resurrection that we're going to get to in just a moment only involves those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And, and we don't want to be a part of that resurrection. And so we know that it includes all believers from all generations. And so the text refers to us to, refers to the first resurrection. It's interesting, this resurrection is called several different things in Scripture. Let me just share those with you. In, in Luke chapter 14 and in Acts chapter 24, it's referred to as the resurrection of the righteous. In John chapter 5, it's referred to as the resurrection of life. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's referred to as the resurrection of those who are Christ at his coming. And in Hebrews chapter 11, this is so good, it is referred to as the better resurrection. And you'll certainly understand why in just a few moments. Now look closely at verse 6. Because we are told here in Scripture that the second death has no power over the saints of God. Those who belong to God through faith in the promised Messiah. And we're going to see more about the second death in just a moment. But just hang on to that truth that the second death has no power over the saints of God. Now, let me just remind you, for an untold number of, of, of centuries, man has dreamed of a golden age, right? We, we've dreamed of a day of peace and prosperity, a, a time where our world is free from war and sickness and disease and, and even death. And we've tried over and over, we've tried every possible way that we know how to accomplish this goal, and yet... We continue to fail time and time again. Why? Listen carefully to me, church. It is only when Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reigns on the throne of David that his kingdom will be established and the world will be set free from the oppression and the the consequences of sin. And that is the day that the text speaks of here in Revelation chapter 20. Now, look with me beginning in verse 7. Because we also see this, we see the final rebellion of Satan. 
Let's read that together, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the text says that Satan will be released from the abyss, from the bottomless pit, from this prison that he's been confined to for a thousand years, and he will go, and go out and lead the nations in this one final act of rebellion and deception against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why, why is Satan set free for this short time? Well, Scripture doesn't answer that question. The Bible doesn't tell us why God releases Satan. We, we can, we can kind of think up many different reasons as to the possibility, but this remains one of the great mysteries of Scripture. Why not just leave him incarcerated? But nonetheless, he's released for a moment. And verse 8 reminds us of how desperately wicked the human heart is. A heart that can only be trans, transformed by the grace and mercy offered through Jesus Christ. Look what we read there. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, to gather them for battle. Now watch this. Their number is like the sand of the sea. An innumerable number of people will fall for Satan's deception. Now, how does that happen? How does it happen that after a thousand years of Christ's perfect and righteous reign, are there an untold number of people who fall for Satan's deception? I, I don't want to get way deep into this, but let me just introduce it to you. The initial inhabitants of the thousand-year kingdom of Christ, we just looked at that earlier, will all be redeemed. They'll all be men and women who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, over the thousand years, the offspring of those tribulation saints who never died, whose bodies were never put into the ground, um, will be in need of salvation. It's a further reminder that everyone, every individual, must make a personal decision to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. Church, listen carefully to me. No one inherits salvation. It doesn't matter how righteous and godly your mom or your dad or your grandmother, or your grandfather, or your aunt, your uncle, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife. None of that matters. Every one of us have to make a personal decision for Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly, there will be numerous and untold numbers of, 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 of the generations of these tribulation saints who say yes to Jesus. But we are told here that there will also be numbers who reject Christ as Lord and Savior. And when Satan returns and begins to deceive the nations again, many will fall in line with him. It's a sad reminder of the reality of man's heart separated from a personal relationship with Christ. Listen, it's a sad reminder that, that our, at our core, we are lovers of sin, we are lovers of pleasure, we are lovers of self, we are lovers of, of stuff, we are lovers of the flesh. 
And it just, just leaps off the pages of Scripture here, that reality that we see. Now, what do we read here? Satan and his enemies and all those he's deceived upon his release from confinement will surround Jerusalem, the place of Messiah's throne, and they will wage war against Christ and his followers. Now, look closely in verses 9 and 10. Like Armageddon in chapter 19, this battle will, will, uh, will quickly turn into an execution. Look what we read there. They surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. In an instant, in an instant, <laughs> they'll be exterminated. The forces of Satan will be physically killed. Now look at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look with me in your notes. Satan will be sentenced to eternal torment in the lake of fire where he will join the Antichrist and the false prophet. Church, this is a great day of celebration for us. For our adversaries once and for all banished from any involvement in humanity. These three, Satan and Antichrist and the false prophet, will experience torment. Look what we read there, day and night, forever and ever. There will not be a single moment of relief for them in the eternal lake of fire you and I know as hell. Now, look with me beginning in verse 11, because Christ isn't quite finished yet. For in verses 11 through 15, we see the final judgment of unbelieving man. Let's read that together. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All the unbelieving from every generation of humanity will be resurrected to experience the final trial of mankind. This is the second resurrection. And like I mentioned earlier, it is a resurrection no one in this room wants to be a part of because if you are a part of this resurrection, your eternal condemnation has already been determined. What do we read here? That Christ will sit upon the throne and he will open the books. Just remember, during his earthly ministry, when Jesus taught about his second coming, he always connected his kingship closely with his role and responsibility as man's judge. L listen to these verses of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And in John 5 and verse 22, we read this, the Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to
to the Son. And so Christ is the ultimate judge of all humanity. And the books that are mentioned here, just, just as a reminder, the books that are mentioned here record every thought, every word, and every deed of every unsaved person who has ever lived. The unrepentant sinner's deeds will be measured against God's perfect and righteous and holy standard. Everyone's name who is not found in the Lamb's book of life will be sentenced to eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Now remember, we've studied this previously, the Lamb's book of life is that heavenly ledger containing the names of all those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I do want to say something real quick here. Do not confuse the great white throne judgment, verses 11 through 15, with the judgment seat of Christ. Those are two entirely different things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told about the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is that place where, where believers' lives will be judged and our works as a Christian will be judged and rewarded accordingly. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment unto eternal life. Listen carefully. Is it a judgment of eternal rewards? So don't, don't mistake these two. Don't confuse these two judgments. We read here in verses 11 through 15 that each person's punishment will be consistent with their rebellion. Now, all of these individuals are going to be cast into the eternal lake of fire. Why? Because their personal rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has already determined their eternal destiny. That, that's not at question. The implication in these verses is that there, there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell. And we see that in Matthew chapter 11. Everyone will suffer eternal torment, night and day. But the degree of that suffering will vary. Everyone in hell will be completely separated from God and his goodness. Everyone in hell will suffer miserably, just not an equal miserable. And so look with me there in your notes. This is what I want you to take away from verses 11 through 15. When the judgment of Christ is completed, all the unbelieving from every generation of humanity will be sentenced to eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Now, what do we do with this? The vast majority of people around the world reject the biblical doctrine of hell. As a matter of fact, the latest statistics we read, there's a growing number of percentage of professing Christians that reject the biblical doctrine of hell. And the argument goes like this. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? S some would argue uh, to us, if, if your God sends people to hell, then, then I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. I want to just speak to those two ideas, those two mindsets for, for just a moment. Okay, Number one, hell is a witness to the righteous character of God. What do I mean by that? A righteous, holy, and just God must judge sin, rebellion, and disobedience. If he's holy and righteous and just, and yet he fails to judge sin and disobedience, 
then he's not holy, righteous, and just. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Hell is a witness to man's responsibility. It is a witness to man's ability to make moral choices. Third, this may surprise some of you, but God does not send anyone to hell. Man chooses to go to hell. As a matter of fact, we just read in Matthew 25, remember that hell was not created for man, but was created for the devil and his angels. It's not God's will that any should perish. And here's what it comes down to. God has provided a way, listen carefully, God has provided a way for every single member of the human race to escape hell and enjoy his presence for all of eternity. He's made a way. And the way to eternal life that God has ordained is through faith in his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Listen carefully. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is God, that he is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, that he created all of creation, that he formed and fashioned every one of us in our mother's womb, and that he has this wonderful and awesome plan for each of our lives. And the Bible says that he left heaven and he came to this earth and he veiled his glory in human flesh. He is fully God and he is fully man. And for 33 years, he lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. And then he willingly and obediently allowed himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. Listen to this, to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin. He, he hung on a cross as our substitute. And he was buried in a borrowed grave. And the Son of God rose from the dead victorious over death and sin and the grave. And the Bible is dogmatic about this truth that God has ordained that faith in his Son is the only way of salvation. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Acts 4 and verse 12, the Bible says, For there is salvation in no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, referencing the name of Christ. Now listen to me, church. And I know this may not apply to many of us in this room, but, but this, this is good for you to have in your bank as you engage people around you. The question, that's, the question that's before us is not, why would a loving God send anyone to hell? That's not the question. The question is this, are you ready for it? Why would a holy and righteous and just God invite any of us into his presence in heaven? That's the question we ought to be asking. For we are all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory and God's righteousness and God's holiness. None of us deserve eternity in his presence. Every one of us in this room, including your grandmother, that precious lady, deserves eternal condemnation. So the question is not, why would a loving God send someone to hell? The question is, why would a holy and righteous and just God allow any of us into his presence? And you want to know the answer? Because he loves you. <laughs> and he was willing to die for you. And he was willing to pay the penalty of your sin so that by his grace and his grace alone, you and I can spend eternity with him. 
So let me ask you this question. Have you made a personal decision to say yes to Jesus Christ? Don't bank on inheriting it because that's not possible. Have you bowed your knees in humility and brokenness and said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Take my life, Lord. Here it is. I want to follow you. Have you made that decision? It's the only decision in your life that matters for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for inviting us to be saved and redeemed and rescued and liberated from sin and its consequences. Thank you for inviting us to spend eternity with you. Father God, I rejoice in Revelation chapter 20. I rejoice that there is coming a day when you are going to establish a righteous kingdom. And for a thousand years, this earth will return to righteousness and purity and holiness. Lord God, my heart breaks. My heart breaks for those who are not a part of the first resurrection. My heart breaks for those who continue to spurn your invitation to be saved. Who continue to say no to Christ. Father God, I don't understand why. I don't understand why anyone would not take that free gift and make it their own. And Father God, if there's any individual in this room today, any senior adult who's maybe in the final chapters of life, any young adult whose life is just getting started, and any of us in between, if there's anyone here today, Lord, that's never made a personal decision to surrender in faith to Christ, Lord, right now, please, Lord God, draw them to yourself. Grab hold of their heart and their mind. Convict them of their sin. Convince them in, of their need of a Savior. Bring them this morning, Lord, to the saving knowledge of Christ. Thank you, Father God. And Lord God, we will be certain to give you all the glory and the honor for any life that you choose to redeem and rescue from darkness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.